0: Do another little experiment. Listen. Let me close your eyes and listen. Is that inside or outside? When you're just with the experience There's no bell, there's no ear, there's no inside, there's no outside, there's just hearing. As soon as we put a concept of ear, of body, of bell, of self, of inside, outside, there's the duality, there's the separation. Tonight I'd like to speak about one of the most important distinctions to be understood in the meditation practice and in our lives. That's the distinction or the difference between our concepts, our ideas, our thoughts about things, and the experience itself. This was illustrated, this distinction was illustrated very clearly. One of the ancient dialogues of Plato, his book, The Republic. He uses the parable of a cave. In this cave are a group of people facing the back wall of the cave. And they're chained in such a way that they're unable to turn around to face the entrance. Imagine yourselves now chained in this cave and this is the back wall of it. And behind you is a fire. And a procession of figures going by, Mm. engaged in all the activities, the varied activities of life. Because of the fire, the procession of figures cast shadows on the back wall. Because this group of people has always lived in the cave, has been chained so they can only face the back wall, they take the shadows to be the reality. That's the only reality that they're aware of. Sometimes happens that one of these people manages to loosen the chains, turns around and sees the fire and the procession of figures, and then understands that the shadows are simply a reflection of reality. Not the reality itself. And even with greater rarity, it may be that somebody in that cave manages to cut the chains completely and go outside of the cave into sunlight, into freedom. <coughs> We're very much in that same situation or predicament as the people in Plato's cave. Because We have been conditioned for so long to live in the world of concept, the world of idea, the world of mental construct. And our attachment to those ideas or concepts are so strong that we've begun to take the concept to be the reality. The path of practice, the path of meditation, is to begin first. To discriminate between the idea and the experience and then to go beyond conditioned experience altogether into freedom. What are some of the concepts which have been so ingrained in our minds that we take them to be real? There's a whole range of them and I'll just mention a few to give you an idea of how strongly conditioned our minds have become. One concept is the concept of place. The idea that the earth is actually divided into separate states or countries, nations, and that these boundaries have some reality other than the reality that we have given them. (coughs) There's one story which was told to me by a friend of mine was traveling to India from Greece and she, because Greeks can't go through Turkey, which this is one concept already, she had to go through Russia and Iran and then to India that way. She described to me the border crossing between Russia and Iran. She said that it was in the middle of this very desert-like countryside Nothing around for miles, very arid. There was a dry riverbed. And over this dry riverbed was a big iron bridge. And in the middle of this big iron bridge was a gate (laughs) locked on both sides. Do you have the picture? (laughs) Uh, The middle of the desert. Nothing around for miles, a dry riverbed and a bridge. And in the middle of a bridge, a gate. And the gate locked. She wanted to go from Russia to Iran. And so the guards at the one side of the bridge had to call the guards on the other. that came to the middle at the same time. to you know, opened the gate. She crossed the border. It's like a Fellini movie.
1: <laughs>
0: and yet, how much... Reality has been invested in that concept of border in separate countries. And if she hadn't gone through that little comedy or drama, it would have been a lot of trouble without the stamp and the passport. And... But it's totally a creation of our minds, the minds of all of us. We invest reality into that idea and then we take the idea to be real. Another concept which has been mentioned several times, which is even more deeply conditioned, is the concept of time. Most of us are pretty attached to the idea of past and future, as if somehow there's a reality to them. And yet when you look, and you actually investigate what the past is or what the future is, you see that there are only certain categories of thought or image in the present moment. The only way we can experience past or future is as a thought now. There's a tremendous burden taken off our lives when we see that past and future are now are present, and that we've created a concept A construct about certain categories of thought. Of memories, remembrances, reminiscences. We've created that category past and then thrown it out back of us as if it really exists back there, other than as a thought. And we have regret and we have guilt and we have daydreaming. We do the same thing with the future. Category of thought, we throw it out in front of us. No planning, imagining, fantasizing. All thoughts happening now. But we label it future, throw it out, as if the future is waiting for us. And we'll catch up to it. (laughs) And how much of our life is spent in anxiety or anticipation or fear or whatever about the construct that we've created. The story of uh, it's an old Zen story of this person you know, living alone in a cave. And he's an artist. and He painted on the wall of the cave a picture of a tiger. And he painted it so realistically that when he was finished, he got frightened. <laughs> and we do the same thing. We have created the concept of past and future and give it so much weight in our lives that we live conditioned by the imagined reality of those concepts. Life becomes extremely simple and harmonious when we realize that all there is, is a succession of present moments. and We learn to trust that and to settle back into the moment attentive to what's going on. There's the concept of place, the concept of time, The concept of ownership We have the idea that we own things Just like for you for a moment To consider or reflect What that could possibly mean What does it mean to own something? There's a story which I like very much Written by Mark Twain In which he talks of a group of horse traders in Russia in the small villages. And the whole story is told from the horse's point of view. (laughs) And from the horse's point of view, they weren't owned by anybody. They were in relationship to various human beings, some of whom were kind, some were cruel. But the concept of ownership never, never entered the horse's mind at all. It's an idea that we've created. And we get very attached to it. That's the sense of possessiveness. The Buddha talked of us not even being able to claim that we own this body, this mind. Can you say, pain, go away now, I don't want you. (laughs) Do you have control over it? Thoughts stop coming. (laughs) They're not subject to our control. If we can't even claim to own this body and mind when we see that it's just elements happening in their own way, then what reality does it have to own anything outside of this? And yet the attachment to that concept is strong. Another concept, concept of age. know, somebody asked how old you are? Mm-hmm. 25, 30, 40, 50, 70, whatever. When you're sitting and paying attention to the breath, how old is your breath? (laughs) How old is the sensation in your leg? How old is a thought? In our actual experience, age doesn't mean anything. It's a concept which we add to the experience we have. And we're conditioned a lot by that concept. Not too old to do certain things, too young to do certain things. We have certain images of what's appropriate for a certain age. And we put ourselves into this box. And it's totally a construct of our minds. When we come down to the momentary experience, that concept dissolves. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership, of age... One of the most imprisoning concepts that we get involved in is the concepts we have of self-image. We all have certain images of who we are. We create this image, this idea, and it's like pouring ourselves, you know those those molds that you used to pour plaster of Paris into? It's as if we pour ourselves into a certain mold. The mold being the particular self-image that we have of ourselves as being bright, as being clever, as being dumb, as being successful, as being unsuccessful, as being wealthy, as being poor, as being a great hero, a coward, a lover, a loser, it doesn't matter. They're all just images that we've been conditioned to believe in, to think of ourselves in that way, and we get very identified with particular roles share with you a couple of stories which illustrate the power of roles, the possibility of working with them. One of the times I was leaving India, coming back to this country, I had been there for a few years, and before leaving you have to get an income tax clearance form, proving that you haven't been working and you don't owe the Indian government any money. So I went to the office, and I had been in India a long time and thought I was prepared. I go to the office, I go up to the desk and I ask the man for the form, the tax form. He says, please wait. Okay, I was ready for that. I sit down and I wait, rising, falling, rising, falling. <laughs> Half an hour, 45 minutes. Then I go up to the desk and I say, well, what am I waiting for? He says, the man with the form isn't here. <laughs> okay. I go back and I sit, rising and falling. I'm getting some great meditation in. Another half hour, 45 minutes go by. I go up to the desk and I say, well, where are the forms? They're in the cabinet behind the desk. Why don't you give them to me? It's locked. Okay, go back.
1: <laughs> I
0: sit down. I'm watching rise and falling, <laughs> irritation. <laughs> and sitting being the wonderful creative space that it is, I have this brainstorm as I'm sitting. I go back to the desk and I say, Well, where's the key? <laughs> And he says, oh, it's in the desk. So I look at him. And I say, why don't you take the key and open the cabinet and give me the form. And he looked at me totally straight. He said, well, it's not my job. (laughs) Identification with a role in a rather extreme form. But we all do it. And it's important to really begin to see the ways in which we limit ourselves, imprison ourselves with this idea of a self-image or a role. Role of teacher, role of student, role of parent, role of child, role of employer, of employee. Million roles, million self-images, all of which are concepts. Had one experience in which I was really working with my own sense of limitation and self-image. Ever since the third grade, my music teacher came into class and told me just to mouth the words <laughs> you know, when everybody else was singing. <laughs> it's been a trip, <laughs> which has been reinforced by many friends over the years.
1: <laughs>
0: but I really like to sing, so there was this conflict. So a few years ago when I was teaching in Boulder in Europa in the summer, I saw listed in the catalogue a course, The Natural Voice, <laughs> I great, a New Age Buddhist singing class, <laughs> uh, it's just what I'm looking for. And it took a lot of, it actually took a lot of courage even to go sign up for that course, but I did and I went and the first few classes were fine. There were all kinds of singing exercises and you know, group singing and it was terrific. Then one day we had a visiting teacher come in, a woman who was teaching Balkan folk singing.
1: <laughs>
0: and she had us, there were about 40 of us in the class, and she had us get around in this circle. And one by one she would sing a note and we were supposed to sing it back to her. <laughs> and I know that you're familiar with Balkan folk singing. <laughs> At least how she was doing, was kind of high-pitched, nasal, strange-to-me sounds. As soon as she started doing this, I knew that I was in big trouble,
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm getting more and more nervous, you know, how she's coming around, getting closer. She gets to me, she sings this note, <laughs> I do something back. <laughs>
1: It wasn't even
0: close. <laughs> wasn't in the ballpark. She does it again. Again, I go back. This was a very determined woman.
1: <laughs>
0: Finally, after about ten attempts, the, the regular teacher of the class kind of jumped into the situation and kind of You know gradually led me up to the right pitch (laughs) when i finally got it the whole class applauded (laughs) it was both rather embarrassing and also very humorous and my mind was appreciating both sides of that and i was appreciating the possibility and the need even to be willing to take some risks to break out of our self-images you know, because they were created for one reason or another. And a strong conditioning created those molds, created those limitations. But we don't have to be imprisoned by them. And whether you do it, you know, in a very, very dynamic, quick way, or you do it in a slow, gradual way, it doesn't matter. But to begin to get a sense, both of the images that we carry of ourselves, the roles we identify with, and to begin to find ways and to see ways that are appropriate for each of us to break through that, not to be limited by those images. This is the concept of place, of time, of age, of ownership, of role, of self-image. Another concept which almost all of us are very identified with, it's the concept of gender. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, are you a man or a woman? Almost everybody knows. <laughs> you know, without thinking, man, woman. And obviously, on one level, there are differences. But on another level, just as with age, when you're sitting, is the breath male or female? You know, what, what gender is the sensation in your knee? It's almost like, you know, you go to the ocean and you see the different waves. And on one level, the waves are different. In different shape, different form, different intensity. And on another level, there's an underlying unity to the waves, all made up of the ocean. In the same way, on very obvious levels, there are differences. On underlying levels, there's a sense of oneness. And that that attachment to the particular level of the difference also creates a a strong limitation for us. We don't open to the totality of ourselves if we're attached to that idea or concept. The concept that is the most deeply rooted, it is the strongest conditioned concept in our minds and the one that is the root cause of conflict and suffering in ourselves and in the world. The root cause of bondage is the attachment we have to the concept of self, of I. This idea that somehow there's an I, a me, a mine, a self, an ego in all of this. And our life revolves around that sense of I, that sense of self. If there's an I, if there's a self, then there's an other. There's other than self, other than I. And from that beginning, we're lost in duality. And when there's duality, there's conflict. Kala Rinpoche, great Tibetan meditation teacher, in one of his teachings he said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts. We live in the world of ideas. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. It is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. Being nothing, we are everything. That is all. What is the reality that we are? The reality free from concept, free from idea. In the Buddhist teachings, especially in the teachings of the Abhidhamma, which is the collection of texts, the Buddhist psychology, which is a very detailed analysis of consciousness and the body in terms of the elements which compose it. In, this, in the teachings of the Abhidhamma, there's a very clear model of understanding this process of mind and body without reference to a self, without reference to an I. What I'd like to do tonight is just to explain briefly this model to give you a sense of the possibility of understanding experience without adding to that experience the sense of self, the sense of ego. And sometimes during this talk, at this point, people's minds begin to drift off a little bit. So see if you can stay focused on it because it's a very clear expression, it's a very clear way of understanding what the whole practice is about. What are the realities that we are, that we experience? The first of the realities, there are four, they're, they're called the four ultimate realities. The first of them is the material elements, the physical plane. And there are a lot of different ways of describing the physical plane. In the traditional Buddhist texts, and for the purposes of meditation, it's described very simply as the four great elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And those are symbolic. The earth element means the sensation of hardness or softness, of heaviness, of lightness. Those sensations that we feel. Fire element is heat or cold. Air element is movement or vibration. Water element has the nature to hold it all together, cohesiveness. It's like when you add water to flour and the water holds the flour together. And dependent upon these four are four secondary characteristics of color, of taste, of odor, and nutritional quality. The fact that when we eat, we gain nutrition from it. So now we'll do a little exercise. If I were to ask you, what are you sitting on? Well, not you, you probably by now are quite wise. Take somebody who hasn't done much practice, say, what are you sitting on? The floor, a cushion. Come to your experience. What actually is the experience of sitting? There's a sensation of pressure, of warmth, of softness. We then put an idea on it of cushion, of floor. But that's an idea, a construct, a concept, which is an overlay to the actual experience of the physical elements. You go outside and I ask you, what do you see? See trees and buildings in the sky and men and women and plants. We don't see trees and sky and buildings and men and women and plants at all. What the eye sees is color and form and light and shadow. And almost immediately, the mind puts a concept onto a particular color and form and light and shadow and calls it a tree, calls it a man, calls it a woman. Do you see the difference Why is it important? We seem to be functioning quite well in the world of concepts. The reason it's important and essential in terms of deepening our understanding of reality, is one basic inherent crucial difference between concepts and the experience, for example, of these physical elements. And that is that our concepts about things don't change. We use the same word. I'm Joseph today, Joseph tomorrow. And know you're a woman today, a woman tomorrow. You see a tree today, a tree tomorrow, a tree the next day. And because we use the same word, because the concept is unchanging, we don't connect with the fact that the actual reality the experience, is in constant change. When we drop into the physical sensations, whether it's of touch, of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, it doesn't matter. When we're on the level of experience, we see that change is happening momentarily. When we're in the world of concept, we get fooled into seeing the permanence of things. Because of that that sense of permanence, due to the concept, we get attached. To the degree that we see the impermanence, the momentariness, it deconditions grasping, it deconditions craving, clinging. If we're attached to that which is changing, we suffer. It's like being attached to summer. How do you feel in winter? Not very happy. When we're attached to that which in its nature changes, we suffer. Because we're out of harmony with how things are actually happening. We're then not open to the flow of changing experiences. To the extent that we live in the world of concept, we don't perceive the momentary changes that are happening. Okay, the material elements, the physical elements. That's the first level of reality. The second level reality that we can experience directly is that of consciousness the knowing faculty that which knows a sight a sound a smell a taste a thought the knowing mostly when people begin to pay attention to their lives to their experience can begin to see the impermanence of physical physical phenomena. It doesn't take so much reflection or wisdom to see that the body is born and gets older and decays and dies. Even if we don't honor that very much, most people know it on some level. What we don't know very often is that consciousness itself is changing moment to moment. So that even when we have the sense of the physical plane, the body going through changes there's often the sense of one observer inside who's watching the passing shower and so even if to a little extent we can let go of the identification with the body as being self because we know that it's just going through this process of change a more subtle level of identification is with the consciousness the knowing and we create the idea the concept of a knower what happens in the meditation practice through a refinement of perception is that we begin to be aware of consciousness also arising and passing many times an in instant. It's like what's happening is a very rapid succession of mind moments arising and passing away. As an example, now you're not hearing and seeing at the same time. It appears that way because the the perception is not finely tuned yet. But when the the mindfulness is strong and the perception is refined, you begin to see the momentariness of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, of thinking, and how it's happening successively. With each moment, with each new object, there's the knowing of it. So what we are is a it's a pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing of a sound coming and going, knowing of a sight coming and going, knowing of a smell of a thought, a sensation. And as we pay more and more careful attention and experience this arising and passing away of consciousness, that's a powerful deconditioning of the sense of self. Because we see the sense of knower, of observer, of witness, dissolves into the momentary process of knowing, of witnessing, of observing. There's nothing solid there. It's constantly changing. There's the material elements. There's consciousness. The third level of reality, and it's in some ways the most interesting in terms of understanding the mind, is a whole group of qualities which arise in different combinations with each moment of consciousness. And they're called mental factors or mental qualities. In every moment of seeing, the consciousness is pure. The consciousness simply knows the object, knows the sight, knows the sound. But in every moment, certain groups of factors arise. For example, greed. Greed is a mental factor. When it arises in the mind, It has the nature to stick to the object. Greed is like glue, and that's the function that it serves in the mind, it sticks to the object. Greed is not I, it's not self, it's not mine, it's simply a factor arising in a particular moment of consciousness, functions in its own way to stick, and passes away. The consciousness is not self, the object is not self, the greed is not self. They're all just processes coming and going. Anger, hatred is a mental factor. It has the nature to strike against the object. We hear a sound. Actually, that's that's using conventional language. What happens is this consciousness of hearing, a moment of knowing that sound is an object, If the sound is unpleasant, that unpleasantness conditions hatred of some kind, irritation, annoyance. So in that moment of hearing, hearing consciousness, the mental factor of anger arises, or annoyance, has the nature to strike against the object, push away. Anger, hatred, annoyance, irritation, not I, not self, not mine, it's an impersonal factor. Delusion is like fog in the mind. When delusion arises, can't see anything. Generosity is a mental factor. It has the nature, the nature of giving, of opening. Love is a mental factor. It's a quality of mind arising in a particular moment of consciousness. And it has the function of goodwill and of loving kindness. Wisdom is a mental factor. In a particular moment of consciousness, if wisdom is there, wisdom has the function to illuminate. It's like if we came into this room and it was totally dark, couldn't see anything. That's the factor of ignorance. Turn on the light switch and everything is illuminated. Everything is clear. There is no one who is generous, no one who is loving, no one who is wise. It's simply the arising of these factors at different times, in different moments, with particular moments of consciousness. So then you might ask, if what we are is this collection of physical elements, which are constantly changing, consciousness, which is constantly changing, and different mental factors, who's being mindful? Who's making the effort to concentrate? Mindfulness, concentration, effort, are mental factors. Mindfulness has the function to notice what the object is. So in a moment of seeing or hearing or, or thinking, if mindfulness is present, that factor has the function to notice oh, a thought, a sensation, a sound. When we're not mindful, there's forgetfulness. We're not aware of the object. Concentration is a factor of mind. It has the function of steadying. How then, if what we are is this collection of changing elements of mind and body, how is it that we all are so deeply conditioned by this sense of self, this sense of I? Go up to anybody and ask them, do you exist? Almost everybody would say yes. Where does that come from? Where does the sense of self, of ego, of I, where does it come from? How does that function? There's another factor of mind, another mental factor, which is called wrong view. And wrong view has a very particular function, which is to identify with the object or with the consciousness. It's that part of the mind which, when a thought arises, claims it as my thought, my sensation, I'm hearing, I'm seeing. That my or I is an extra process to the actual experience. There is a thought. The thought is the thinker. The thought is thinking itself. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. The sensation is feeling itself, no one behind it, but because of wrong view we identify the tendency of mind to add on to the moment of experience this sense of mind. The power of mindfulness as a factor is that it's never associated with wrong view. Those two cannot go together. And so in every moment of mindfulness, of every moment of attention, what we're doing is deconditioning this identification with various parts of the process. We're freeing our mind from that concept of self. I'll give you an example which may help To kind of get a a visual, uh, experiential sense of the selflessness of this process. If you go outside tonight, or some night, and you look up at the sky, and you see the Big Dipper. Does Does everybody not know what the Big Dipper looks like? You look up at the sky and you see these stars, and you see the Big Dipper. Let me ask you a question. Is there really a Big Dipper up there? Is there?
1: There's no Big Dipper.
0: There isn't. There are stars in a certain pattern. And we create a concept about that pattern and call it Big Dipper. There's no Big Dipper. (laughs) And when you can see the stars without the concept of Big Dipper. Let me just backtrack a minute. The concept of Big Dipper is what separates those stars out from all the other stars in the sky. It's like that's the separating device, is the concept. When there's no concept, then you look up and you see stars in the sky. You see the oneness of it. In exactly the same way, we are a constellation of experiences. We are a constellation of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and thoughts and emotions. And this constellation of experiences is constantly changing and moving. Nothing static, nothing steady. But it's happening in an ordered way. It's not happening chaotically. There's a pattern to it. It's just like there's a pattern to the stars. We have put a concept onto this pattern, Joseph, and become so identified with the concept, with the pattern, that we forget that it's our own construct. We've created it. We've created that separation. To the extent that I put a concept on this pattern, just as when we put a concept of Big Dipper, that's the separating. That's the separating mechanism. Just do another little experiment. Listen. Let me close your eyes and listen. Is that inside or outside? When you're just with the experience, there's no bell, there's no ear, there's no inside, there's no outside, there's just hearing. As soon as we put a concept of ear, of body, of bell, of self, of inside, outside, there's the duality, there's the separation. What I'm suggesting is not to throw out concepts, because actually Big Dipper is a very useful concept. From the Big Dipper you can find the North Star, you know, and it's very helpful. It's a helpful navigational tool. With all the concepts that I've talked about, they all have their uses. There's a level of understanding which they're very appropriate but we get fooled into thinking there's a kind of ultimate reality to them, and that's where we get caught and attached. Is the reality of the physical sensations which are constantly changing, the material elements, consciousness constantly arising and passing away, these different mental factors arising and vanishing. The fourth of the ultimate realities is the one that's the hardest to talk about, It's that which is called the unconditioned or nirvana. And again, I'll, I'll just suggest an image which may give you a sense of the possibility of what that is. Everything that we are is conditioned phenomena. Every consciousness is conditioned, sensations, mental factors, the whole world, everything that's known is conditioned. Conditioned means that it arises because of causes. And whatever has the nature to arise must also pass away. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Everything we know is conditioned. So everything we know, everything we experience is changing, is impermanent, is insubstantial in that way. There's also the unconditioned, going beyond the norm. Beyond the caused. Imagine. Imagine a sphere. Okay. And everything that's known. Everything. You know. Sensations and thoughts and emotions and buildings and concepts. And the solar system and the galaxies and everything. The totality of everything that's known. Is on the surface of the sphere. What we've done is to separate out one tiny, tiny, tiny little corner of that whole realm of experience. We kind of put a fence around it and call this part of experience is me. This is self. This is Joseph. And everything outside of that is other than self, other than me. Now imagine the center of the sphere. What's the center? The center is a point. A point has no dimensions. It Has no width, it has no breadth, it has no height. You could think of it as the zero center. (coughs) And in one Tibetan text, talking about the unconditioned, analogous to the zero center, it says it is but it doesn't exist. That zero center is not an existing thing. It's zero. And yet that center point is what determines the sphere. It okay, it's a very crucial role. What happens in the practice is that as the mental factors of mindfulness, of concentration, of energy, there are, there are certain factors of enlightenment which we're all cultivating, when they're all balanced and matured, brought into a perfect poise, and the mind is in that state of perfect balance, there's the possibility then of the intuitive opening to the unconditioned, to the zero center. It's going from what's known to what's unknown, unknowable. From that perspective of the zero center, we see that we're not just one little part separated out on the surface. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts and ideas. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing We come to the selflessness of the process. Being nothing, we are everything. When we're no longer separating ourselves out as being one part of experience, we become the totality. And that's really what we're doing here. It's not to kind of feel good, although that may or may not happen. And it's not to get psychological insight, although that may or may not happen, but it's really to penetrate to the absolute center, to that zero, to that unconditioned center from which there's an understanding of freedom. Do
1: you have any questions?
0: They're all conditioned by different causes. In other words, and there's no ultimate beginning to where they arose from, but in any one segment, you can begin to see some conditioning. It's just a, a very simple sequence. You know, we hear a Dharma talk. And from the talk, perhaps, you know, the factor of faith arises, or confidence. Because of the confidence, that conditions effort. The confidence conditions effort. The effort conditions mindfulness. The mindfulness conditions wisdom. So it's just one factor conditioning another. As I mentioned this morning, some of the very crucial factors, feeling. Feeling meaning pleasantness or unpleasantness, which is a mental factor, conditions craving and aversion. There's no one who's feeling aversion. There's no one who's craving. It's just this impersonal process working itself out because of feeling, because of pleasantness, when there's not attention, when there's not mindfulness. The feeling itself is what conditions craving or resistance. There's no one behind it. It's just a process playing itself out. And the power of the Buddha's enlightenment was that he penetrated and understood the nature of this conditioned process, which is an amazing, amazing discovery. The the kind of separation or discrimination of the mind and all the different mental factors is likened to taking a glass of water from the ocean and being able to tell drop by drop which river it came from. And that's, it takes the mind of a Buddha to do that. And fortunately we can benefit from his work. And we, we won't get that level of subtlety, but we can begin to see through observation how these different factors are working and how they condition one another. Who's like or or... Okay. Um, I'd like to respond to a couple of things in that question. One is sometimes there's confusion because Western psychology uses the word ego in a different way than the Buddhists do. And, it's, and it gets confusing because in Western psychology, ego strength is important and necessary. Ego, in Western psychology, as I understand it, has to do... Ego is the pattern of personality, or the pattern of mind, the pattern of factors. And in that sense, it is there. There is a pattern to it. And what's important is that there's stability in that pattern. Because if the pattern is not stable, it's very difficult to function. It does not refer to some kind of essential, unchanging essence. And that's the sense in which the Buddha used the word ego, or how it's been translated, that sense of self, unchanging, unchanging I. That's what's found to be a concept. So you could think of it in terms of ego without self. Just the pattern is there, and the stability is important, and what we're doing actually in our practice is making the mind more and more stable. And balanced. In terms of different forms of mental illness, of course, there are tremendous subtleties to the ways in which the mind can get out of balance. But one of the underlying mm, causes is when we lose. Let's see, Let's back up a little bit. When people, when all of us pay attention to the content of our minds. I don't know about you, but I'd certainly be locked up. (laughs) When you really pay attention to the whole range of what the mind is putting out. (laughs) It's nuts. I know. Well, it has the whole range. I mean, it's wonderful also, but it definitely has that totally insane side to it. So that's not where mental illness, that's not where it lies. Because everybody's mind contains everything. Where the mind gets into trouble is when the identifying factor is way, way out of balance. And people get locked in, totally identified and involved with a particular thought or a particular feeling or a particular image and don't have any ability at all to separate out from it and so what we're really doing uh, on another level is creating a uh, the foundation of genuine mental mental health that ability to be with whatever comes up, no matter how crazy or how bizarre, if there's no identification with it, there's no problem. It's just, it's just a thought, just a sight, just an image, just a feeling coming and going. If
2: we're a collection of patterns of various various things like this, rising and falling in their own way, then. Uh, then just considering our functioning way of going about in this body so forth. then is the idea of free will and choice and so forth
0: just kind of irrelevant? That question of free will and determinism somehow I think um, is just inherent in that dichotomy is endless discussion and I remember when I was a freshman in college studying philosophy hours and hours and we used to stay up nights arguing free will, you know, well if there's choice but if everything's conditioned how can there be choice and so my sense is just from having gone through that process is that somehow those concepts are not Posed correctly and I, I could not uh, could not really give you a satisfactory philosophic answer you know. experientially it seems like they're both true everything is conditioned and also there seems to be a choice that we can make to do one thing rather than another So, good luck.
2: (laughs) Regarding the concept of ownership, uh, with Mark Twain's horses as your illustration, from the point of view, the orientation of the horses, there is no such reality in ownership. From the point of view of the people who were using the horses, to a large degree, to eliminate chaos, there actually is the identification, say, hey, I'm using this horse." Okay. And are we not distinguishing between attachment in terms of greed or desire versus the fact that the ladies were doing their socks this morning, one lady owned one pair of socks and somebody else owns another pair of socks. Okay. So we do
0: identify... With the fact that, hey,
2: this particular thing or
0: object, I'm using it. Right. And this automobile is something that I own. Right. I understand. The, as I said, I was not suggesting that we throw out the concepts. Because all of those concepts have a very effective use. Perhaps would be chaotic, you know, without it. What I was suggesting that it is only a concept. It's a useful one. And we should employ it. But when you actually look at the experience, what does it mean to own a sock? I mean, you can put it on your foot. (laughs) And you can use it, as you say. It's like the concept has a function. The concept is useful, but it is only a concept. And then when you come down to the experience, there's a certain relationship. There's seeing a color and feeling the, you know, feeling the sensation. And that was the distinction I was trying to make. Not that the concept wasn't useful, because it is. And and, and we use it. But to see the difference between the concept and the actual experience—does that make sense to you?
3: I would like to ask something about this um, notion of self or Western psychology ego. Um, this has been suggested to me that to do this practice well. It is very necessary to have a, very, a well-integrated sense of self, a good ego structure, and it is rather folly to try and see or transcend what is underdeveloped in the first place. And the mental factors associated with strong ego, well, I guess, would be maturity, uh, experience in the world, and in a certain way satisfaction of some of the desires that uh, a young person would have in this world, say, for. Whatever, financial gain, sex, da da da.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, is what we suggest it seems
3: to be fairly true. And in order to do this practice well, it is a good idea, a uh, sane idea, to have a good sense of self. Am I correct?
0: Okay, yeah, absolutely. But the, the problem is that we're using the word self or ego in different ways. And that's where the confusion comes from. Self or ego in the sense that you were using it in terms of a stability or maturity of the pattern is helpful. And, and to some extent is necessary, although it doesn't have to be super developed. But some minimal level of stability is necessary. That... Kind of self, or the self used in that way, is different than the sense of an unchanging I, an unchanging me, around which everything evolves. And that's the selflessness that's talked about in the practice. So it's really, it's, it's really two different things that are being talked about. <clears throat> okay. Um,
3: yes, Jen, I did hear that Gandhi uh, when he was a young man, really quite erotic. Um, just incidental. so his sense of self is we call uh, ego, pattern. is isn't exactly, um, in the Western psychological tradition, what you call it healthy. Yet yeah, he did turn out to be quite a remarkable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe it's possible to be both remarkable and neurotic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I hope so. <laughs> Okay, I think that if you have some more questions, you could come up. As you go out and do the walking now, as a way of actually applying this talk to your practice, as you walk, see if it's possible to drop into the level of experience where there's no concept of foot or leg or body or ground, But you actually drop into the level of momentary sensation. You know, and if you wanted, you could think of it in terms of the elements, you know, of lightness or heaviness or movement. Or simply to be just with the momentary changing sensations that are felt. And you'll see the difference. It's like the body dissolves into just a a flow of changing feelings. And it's in that way that we get past the identification with an attachment to the concept of body, to the concept of self, of me. And the walking it's it's a good entrance way, you know, into this understanding. Thank you. good? What do you go from that? What lies beyond that? What's the next step? What the practice is developing is the balanced relationship to experience on all levels of perception. In other words, at certain levels we see arm, we see body, and, and we feel pain in the knee. So the balanced relationship to that is just one of openness and acceptance. As the perception gets more refined, and we get more, I call it the subatomic level, you know, just that momentariness of phenomena, again, what's being developed is the proper relationship to it, which means no reaching out, no pushing away, the perfect equanimity. Out of that perfect balance of mind, that's the condition, or that's the, it's out of that balance, that the mind can intuitively open to what's beyond mm-hmm. that flow, mm-hmm. to the unconditional zero.
2: And what made me wonder about that was, I uh, forget the name of the book, Eric Lerner. Okay. He seemed to have gotten that point. But it seemed to give him a lot of problems. And from there, it seemed like he just he quit. <laughs> you know, was, Actually I he's a good friend of mine.
0: Oh, yeah. uh,
2: you know that—that was my impression yeah. from the book. Yeah. And that left me kind of, i thought, well, geez, this is what
0: you're trying yeah. to get. Well, to. it's there's more, the last part of the story of Plato's cave really illustrates that point. It's like somebody who cuts the chains, chains, and goes outside you know, analogous to mm-hmm. freeing the mind, then goes back into the cave, and at first is really stumbling around, because it doesn't adjust, and it's hard to adjust back. In the same way, um, this opening to the unconditioned, and I'm going to talk more about this later on, uh, also goes in stages, and so the first glimpse is... It uproots certain defilements of mind, but there are still many left. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. And the integration of that totally radically different understanding, it takes time. I mean, it's like, it's like going back into the cave and, you know, mm-hmm. and getting reaccustomed to that. <coughs> With full enlightenment, uh, you know, one's totally free. My guess is that there's no integration process. Yeah. But
2: so that's a, that's the point that may may have required or may may require a
0: lot of guidance. It does, it does. Although the the force of understanding is so strong that even others can be rocky and difficult. It's only in one direction.
1: Who chooses mindfulness?
0: Mindfulness also, as I, it's like in a sequence that I mentioned, mindfulness is conditioned by faith, by confidence, by effort. There's no one behind it, but because of certain causes, then mindfulness arises. In other words, you hear something, and hearing something inspires, and inspires creates the effort, and the effort creates the mindfulness. So there's a whole sequence. Of causes or conditions behind the mindfulness, and sometimes you can see it clearly, and sometimes it's just it arises in the moment with conditions behind it, and you can't see it quite quickly. Like, you know.
2: uh-huh. do you mean then that it's a, it's a case of sort of like synchronicity, where mind, say, like uh, mindfulness arises in, in synchronicity with the other kinds of patterns that are that constitute what we think of as ourselves, and just. Happens in a synchronous way, so it sounds, it feels like we experience mindfulness. And
1: yeah, maybe.
0: <laughs> I think there's one book of the Abhidhamma which is called The Book of Relations, which goes into great detail of how, of all the ways one moment conditions the next moment. Munindra knows it very well. I, basically, I know that the book exists. <laughs> you know but for people who have that kind of analytic mind it's very interesting for people who don't it would be totally incomprehensible and so for those of you who are interested there's a way of studying it uh, to understand that
1: mm-hmm.
0: but for our purpose there's no need to do that yeah. and it's it's basically at whatever level of perception we have to see this simple example with feeling and desire to see how pleasant feeling conditions craving and unpleasant feeling conditions resistance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's like there's no one behind that. It's just it's just those impersonal factors working.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, listening to you talk, I've been I've been trying to get a sense of myself as this kind of changing pattern of things and so forth. And it's so to me that's a concept now. Right, right. That's so why. so for me, uh, the thing I can think of to do is simply to go to walk. Go <laughs> practice. <laughs> exactly. Do, do, do yeah. the practice Absolutely. and not worry about it. Absolutely. For now. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> is Which this is called? why the emphasis is on practice during the retreat yeah. and not on the intellectual understanding. Is Vipassana what's called the middle way? Yeah.
3: Where is the ground on this? Where Where is one to uh, become a, ta- uh, a task?
0: No. Mindfulness is the ground. There's not a ground. Of experience is a ground of relationship to experience. I'll give you an example that was used. It's as if you jump out of an airplane, and the first is just the exhilaration of free fall and then you go for the parachute, and you realize there's no parachute. Right? Panic, fear, and you kind of fall and fall and fall and Terrified until further down the line you realize there's no ground
1: <laughs> 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 you know, you enjoy.
0: At first when you realize when the, sense of the, the sense of Seeing the, the continual change at first is frightening right? Because the mind wants to hold on to something for security until you see that the whole process, um, it's like there's no one there that's going to hit ground. And so you, it's, that's like realizing there's no ground. You just become the flow of changing experience. But you go through the, the same kind of perspectives that you would if you were falling out of the airplane. In that example, in the practice itself, you go through a lot of those stages, which I'm going to talk about more.
1: Um, if the insight is so available and the practice is relatively easy and if we can come here in a few days and have so much insight give me or incrementally or whatever and there's so much suffering in the world and it's been this insight and practice has been available for so many thousands of years how come how come everybody how come it isn't taught to us when we're little kids, and <laughs> how come everybody isn't doing it? And you know, That's a good well, question. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, isn't that it? Doesn't what? Sorry, <laughs> I was going to say, isn't that because it hasn't been um, taught outside monasteries That's until Ubarkin brought it?
0: No, no, it's been made taught
1: available to non.
0: No, it, it's been taught in and out of monasteries over there. Oh, it is. Yeah, and in the
1: Buddhist
0: in the Buddhist time, actually, more lay people got enlightened than monks, just because there were many more lay people.
1: I am, but I mean later on.
0: (laughs) No, also through through the years.
1: But here it is, and here we Uh, are, and how come? Okay,
0: go go into LA (laughs) and try telling somebody, Uh and then you'll see why not everybody's doing it because peop- people's minds are very very conditioned attachment attached to opinion to too, huh? uh, tremendously attached attached to desires yeah. and it takes a great deal of openness just to be willing to hear
1: mm-hmm. 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 uh-huh. what is does responsibility mm-hmm. in for one's behavior oh. if it's all conditioned
0: mm-hmm. it's total responsibility because When you understand the law of karma, the fact that everything that's done creates a certain result, things are not happening chaotically, they're not happening randomly. Even though
1: everything is conditioned?
0: Precisely because everything is conditioned. Oh. In other words, when there's an act based on greed, there's a certain result conditioned by that greed. And that result, in the case of greed, is suffering. The Buddha talked of three roots of suffering, greed, hatred, delusion. Those are the conditioning forces, factors of mind that bring back pain. And there are are wholesome roots which bring back happiness. When you realize that, then it's like this total responsibility because it's not dependent on anyone or any other being. The whole process is unfolding according to certain laws. And here's where the responsibility is, not outside but that also gives tre- tremendous responsibility and also tremendous sense of power and confidence because it is not dependent on anyone outside. Uh, and that's why we begin to take care with our actions. It's what Alan was talking about the first night, me at path. Now, all those ways to act skillfully moment to moment. And mindfulness is the key. I and mean, that's If we're not mindful, we don't know what we're doing. And we're just playing out all the habit patterns.
1: So we're just building up karma.
0: Huh? Yeah, in if every moment. Yeah. yeah, and in every moment of mindfulness, it's the strengthening of wholesome karma. Mm-hmm.
1: Is that the free will then that chooses which acts?
0: I, I, those two words just <laughs> get the mind in trouble, <laughs> and so I.
1: It just is confusing yes. because if there is free will to choose uh, our acts, then. <laughs> Who is responsible for that free will? That's the question I was
3: asking. Well, didn't the Buddha
0: define karma as being volition? Right. And volition is also a condition factor. I think those concepts will drive you nuts. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it's better. Of course, it's interesting, and I spent, as I said, a long time Okay. kind of in that discussion but i think it's more fruitful just to drop back into your momentary experience and see how it's happening rather than try to fit those concepts on, onto it
1: mm.
0: because i i my intuitive sense is that they're both true
1: yeah isn't that mm. one of blake's contraries that both things are true mm. Children, um yeah I've just giggling at some paradox that I've been experiencing coming Sitting here in the last 50 days, and to be here now, and the minute you close your eyes, there are movies, you know, and you go out, open your eyes, and you walk out, there are movies there, on the, you know, appearing in the business on that level. And you come here and close your eyes, and go by movies again, dreams, you know, dreams, and dreams, and then word chimes in, be here now, who is here, (laughs) you know, I mean, it it is no here, and um, when you say it's the concept of language deception, Mm -hmm. be here automatically, inherently, in our anyway, language, you be here, Right. And it increases the sense of I am here. Right. You know, right. I've been giggling at that for the right. last two, three days, and I'm having wonderful time with it. <laughs> in
0: <laughs> this, so I hope you know the giggling. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, no, you're
0: quite, you're quite right though, because in yeah. them, in the moment's experience, yeah. all those yeah. concepts dissolve, and, yeah. and and in Zen, so. it's called the suchness, yeah. just just what there is. is.
1: Because Every time we know it, you know a jacks would be here. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Can <could> I please walk? <laughs> 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 <laughs>